Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 132 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Yo. Guys, how is everybody? Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to finish Andrew's book for the podcast, and I finished it like 11.30 last night. I'm ready to talk about it, feeling hyped. How are you guys? Any shame? Uh, No shame this time. Keeping it shame-free to start the year. Shame-free in 2023. 2023, yes. Ooh, I like that. Except there will be shame. Let's let's not kid ourselves here. (laughs) Say it for as many episodes as you you can say it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't read Andrew's book, but I'm also shame-free. I don't feel bad about it. I'm excited to hear about it from Andrew's mouth. We should say that Bailey also did have this book on her list. So it's not like Mm. there was any expectation that you read it, Toby. I don't want you to feel bad or sad or mad. It's not like you're reading another book now, Toby, that would take your attention in time. Well, when Bailey said that she read it, I did feel a little bad. And then I felt a little mad and sad. So, you know, that's just what happens. Like, you know, I'm dealing with those emotions right now. But then did you? Mm. Bailey, I see what you're saying. You remember that you're also reading Infinite Jest, and so you're smarter than everyone. Yeah, that is uh, that is a constant comfort to me in these dark days. Isn't Infinite Jest on both of your lists, too? So don't you guys have to read them? It is not on my list, and I, no. Absolutely not, Dylan. Dylan, please, please prank Bailey. Please buy her a copy of Infinite Jest with oh, yeah. like three days left before the recording. Do not. Wait, Billy, by law, if I put a book on the to-read-list bookcase, does that mean it automatically goes in? Oh. No. I will say, yeah. recently I did a purge, and I noticed that, Dylan, your to-read-list is pretty pretty high up there. You have a lot of books. Oh, yeah. So, but they're boring books no one wants to hear about. Well, I know, but I'm just saying it's not just me. Well, I did have a little shame this week. Oh, burying the lead, <laughs> I see. I know. But, well, mm-hmm. okay. So I finished A Deadly Education, which was good. I gave it four stars. Yeah, I did too, I think. The only thing that brought it down for me, I, I got really into it by the end, but I just thought it was a lot of world building up top. I wanted a little more of the action. A lot of world building up top and then in the middle and then a little bit right at the end and as well. And then at the end as well. A lot of world building. So I finished that one, but then I bought the next book. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of a one for one there. I'm not that ashamed because I'm excited to read that one. So yeah. Nice. I'm definitely going to read the second one at some point. I just, I, I give myself time. So we'll see. I'll I get know. around to it. I was listening to another podcast that is a friend of this podcast, which is the Perks of Being a Book Lover. And they were talking about us, actually, because they were saying that... Were they talking smack? They were... And they didn't think that I would hear it? (laughs) They were debating whether or not they could do a TBR jar, which is essentially like the choosing. It's like you put all of the book titles on post-its in a jar and pick one out at random. And then they were saying, like, Mm. what if you had a TBR jar, as in whenever you added a new book to your shelf, you had to put a dollar, like a swear jar, in the jar. And they said, Bailey should do that because otherwise (laughs) she's never going to stop. Oh, wow. Wow, that's bananas. (laughs) (laughs) B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Thank you, Andrew. And I just want to say that that would not dissuade me from adding more books to the shelf. You would just end up writing the jar to buy more books. Yeah, yeah, you would absolutely use that as your book fund. You know how to book, girl. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that they managed to come up with a plan that completely erases our need for Dylan. Wait Which a is just a jar. I can't be replaced with a yeah, jar. Which is literally a receptacle. <laughs> Just a jar. And we wouldn't have to listen to Dylan's bizarre descriptions of the books where it sounds like he's like torturing us with them. We like it though, right? I like it. Yeah, I do like it. Yeah, he's basically Jigsaw for book lovers. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, I should do the next choosing with a Jigsaw voice modifier. Would you like to read a book? I also, I just, I've been feeling a little dragged lately about adding to my TBR, but guys, that's why you listen, right? My friends are like, the intro should be, it should be, I attempt to maintain the same number on my shelf. And I was like, rude. (laughs) Rude, rude. You're just going to come back home one day and all the books are going to be gone except for Infinite Jest just to hang it out of the bookshelf. That would be a really good April Mm -hmm. Fool's. (laughs) All right. So here's the deal, guys. A lot of pages have been reaching out because they know what state I live in, which is fine. (laughs) Try finding me. You won't. About this article that was in the New York Times about a small town in upstate New York. Well, actually, the article just says New York. And I was nervous because immediately people were messaging on on our text chain and through Instagram saying that I have to go there because of where I live. (laughs) <laughs> Say what the town has. The reason this town appeals to Pejos and book lovers alike is that it's a New York town of 400 people that has eight independent bookshops. Wow. That's a lot. I bet those bookshop owners hate each other. 
<laughs> this sounds like a money laundering operation. No. <laughs> One bookshop for every 50 residents. Now, immediately, of course, people have reached out saying I should go. I was really nervous. New York is a big state, guys. Saying something is in New York it does not necessarily mean uh, that it is close to me. However, it mm. is, as the Google Maps flies, the town of Hobart, New York, uh, is an hour and 15 minutes from my home. Uh, so I will be making a trip. I will sample the delectable wares and tell you uh, what's up with the Bartster. I think you need to review each bookstore in the same way mm-hmm. that I reviewed, like when I went on a college tour and like the pros and cons, and then tell us which is mm-hmm. the best and mm-hmm. which one you're going to apply to early decision. Ask for a tour at every bookstore. Yep. And make them walk backwards and hope they fall down. And ask them annoying mm-hmm. questions. <laughs> or ask if they have chocolate milk in the uh, in the deli. What's the male to female ratio of your bookstore? Yeah. <laughs> this is my my go-to question always, which is what's the best thing about the school and the worst thing? Because whatever oh they God, say Bailey. for the worst thing is very telling. <laughs> I can't imagine having to give you your school tours. As someone who gave school tours, that question is not fun for the tour guide to answer, but I guess it is informative. <laughs> That's the idea. It's not a question they get often. Dylan was considering once. Did any of them? Wait, actually, wait, Bailey. What? They do get it often. <laughs> oh, they do? <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought I was all smart. It's a good, no, but it is a good question, but it is like a common like sort of parent gotcha. It's never the kid who asks that. It's mm. always the parent. Did any of the kids giving the tour look you straight in the eyeballs and be like, this, this is the worst part of this school? <laughs> When I visited Wesleyan, like I was like interested in the school. And then as I was going around, there were people protesting like at the tour groups. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know about this. But anywho, so I'll be taking a trip and I'll check out that those bookstores and I may bring back some shame, but it will be shame based in research. And that's a different kind of shame. You better bring back a minimum of eight pieces of shame. Can I come? Yeah, if I don't bring back eight books, what if one is bad and I'm just like, oh, sorry, owl and ghost bookshop. What you need to do is buy the same book at all the bookstores. And, and see and which then, one smells the best. And yeah. compare the prices. Like, this is not interesting, but I guess it, it is because this is how old I am. In middle school, we had to do some research project about math. And mine was finding out the differences in prices of the same CD at different stores. CDs, remember those? Mm-hmm. And like, I would ask, like, how much is Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt? They wouldn't speak to you. <laughs> and I, they would not speak. <laughs> and I would write it all down. But what I learned was that Walmart was the same because the guy I talked to for every single one, I was like, how much? He's like $16.99. $16.99 for every single one. That's a great story. And he's like, I can't sell it to you. You're just a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Hella goon. <laughs> wow, a lot of Gwen Stefani content in this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> I, I love how these episodes just come together, guys. That we didn't plan that. That's just happening. Uh, all right, Andrew. Uh I heard um I heard you read a book for this podcast, but I'm incredulous. Who told you? Oh so I uh, mean I'm Bailey told me, but I, I'm incredulous. I, I can't summon any belief that you did it. Yeah, I can't believe it either. I believe you. Uh, Do you believe Andrew read a book? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> wow. Now we're to share, everybody. <laughs> yes, I did read a book. Um, I read The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Okay, I believe you. Mackay, Mackay, Rebecca Mackay, your friend and my. It's Rebecca Mackay. What? I just wow. made that up. And that is actually her contractually st- stipulated <laughs> intro song that I didn't know about until now. If you don't sing it, we'd owe her $20,000, but <laughs> Bailey saved us. So uh, this is a book that has been on my shelf for a while now. Um, it's actually a purchase that Jillian made, and I steadily moved it to my own to-read list as well. And Bailey, I understand that it is on your list as well, as we talked about in the intro, and you are read it. But let me have my moment in the sun. It is your time. I will give you your time. I will just say that I got it because I think it was up for the National Book Award or the Pulitzer. Yeah, I was a finalist for that. Yeah. So I think that's, I heard great things about it. Great. (laughs) I believed it was great. And so I bought it. Did you get that? Yeah. Because it's called The Great Believers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I picked it up. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. All right. This uh, is great. I'm just going to walk away now. All right. So here is a little kind of long teaser for you. It's not really a log line, but 
you know, what is these days? Here we go. Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers follows the same characters 30 years apart, switching between the beginnings of the AIDS crisis in the gay community of Chicago and Paris in 2015. We follow Yale Tishman, a young, polite gay man as he tries to score a major win for his work, a small fledgling gallery at Northwestern, while around him losses of all kinds gather. 30 years later, we follow many of the same characters as Fiona travels from Chicago to Paris in search of her estranged daughter. Read together, the novel is about the unfairness of disease, the cruelty of survival, the beauty to be found in simply being with other people, and how grief and kindness echo. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful. Thank you. I took a long time writing it because it's hard to write a logline about a dual narrative, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that sort of teases out the beginning to give you a little more context. Yale uh, Tishman is the protagonist of the first narrative. And the action he's trying to do is he's gotten a a bequest, perhaps, of potentially very valuable artwork for this like very like just starting out gallery at, at Northwestern University um, that would like really make their collection. It's these like unseen sketches from famous artists during the like early part of the 1900s um, in, in Paris. And so he's talking to this old woman who's from there and he's trying to get her to give him the art. While all that's happening, he has a lot of turmoil going on. It's at a, actually placed at a really interesting point in the AIDS crisis where a fair amount is known, but there's no treatment really for anything. So it is truly like a death sentence delayed if you receive a positive diagnosis. The test has just come out so people can know for sure if they're positive. So it's like this very scary um, ledge that Yale and his characters, who are primarily also gay men in Chicago, are walking. Mm. Fiona, who is the protagonist of the second part of the story, is also there because the, and this is not a spoiler, the uh, story kicks off with the death of Nico, who is her brother, um, and it kicks off at his funeral. That's like the beginning chapter of the book. And 30 years later, we fast forward and Fiona's daughter is estranged. Uh, We have a lot of characters from the first section of the book coming back, and she goes to Paris to try to um, seek her out and sort of mend the fences that were sort of broken down in her childhood. Make sense? Correct. (laughs) Sounds like a laugh riot. Yeah, it's a laugh riot. The chapters alternate completely evenly. There are exactly the same number of Yale chapters and Fiona chapters, and they alternate, just to give you an idea of the structure. But the Fiona ones are a little bit shorter. They tend to be a little bit shorter. There are times when they're even, and there's like a certain stretches where um, where the Fiona sections are a little bit, like take over a little bit. But yeah, it's primarily, if you like look at gross page count for each of them, the Yale storyline in the, in the 80s takes precedent and, and has the most, you know, word count to it. Mm-hmm. Mm. With all that out of the way, I want to talk about what I liked about this book, which is, spoiler alert, pretty much everything about the book. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So, and Bailey and I were sort of texting as we were reading it because it was one of those situations where it was sort of a race for us both to finish it. And that's fun. <laughs> we, I think we both had the same experience. Oh, yeah. Not to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say in a little bit. Um, let's just let's just dive right into Rivendell here and talk some elves. <laughs> Do it. Uh, so, like a dual narrative can be really hard to pull off. I often, as I've talked about on this podcast, sort of bristle with multiple perspectives and bouncing around. It's just something that I naturally have sort of a my back up against it. So when it happens, happens really well. It's awesome, but it often falls flat for me. Um, and this might be the most successful one I've read. The oh. like the two narratives work really well together. They flow really well, as we sort of touched on. I think Mackay is really intentional about length of chapter, uh, like intensity of event that happens in each of the chapters and balances them really well. And I never finished a chapter not excited about visiting the other perspective because sometimes you're like, oh, but I wanted to yeah. stay with character X, but now I have to talk to character Y over here. Oh, freaking character Y, always the worst. (laughs) More like character Y bother. Exactly, Toby. (laughs) But I bothered with both of these characters. Nice. Yeah. No, and I I think genuinely, like, that's something that even in books that I've really liked that have multiple perspectives, there's one I lean to. But I, I think that this one is one where, you know, give me Fiona, give me Yale. I like them both. And I alluded to this in my first Elf, but I think it's really sort of like a distillation of what I liked about the book. I think the book had incredible balance, Mm. not just in those two narratives like I talked about, but I felt like Mackay gave us exactly what we needed. Some characters were small and she let them be, and they were more impactful for like only being there and you not knowing that much about them. Some storylines could not be resolved within the frame of the the story without it feeling trite, and she doesn't resolve them. And I think the book is better for it. I think she really gets Mm. that balancing act better. I don't know if you agree with that, Bailey. I really agree with everything that you said. And I was always excited for the next chapter. And it made it 
quite a page turner for me. Like I was worried it was going to take a long time to get through, but because you're like, okay, I'll just read one more, you know, I'll just read one more Yale and then I just might as well knock out the Fiona. It's pretty short. And then all of a sudden you're 50 pages done. So I thought it was incredibly effective. Yeah. And that's impressive because this is like a densely formatted book, at least in the paperback that I think we both were reading from. Nice. Making me wish I had read this book. Well, you should read this book. I'll try not to spoil anything for you and the pages, because I think it's a a worthy read. Well, Toby, could you like sandwich it in between whatever you're reading right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I have plenty of reading time, so I'll just do that. (laughs) Also, the book has surprises, which genuinely surprised me, which doesn't often happen. And also moments where the the reader sort of sees things happening before the characters intentionally, which is, again, like a nice balance. You get some of those that are genuinely like, oh, wow, okay, rug pulled out from under me. And some which is like, oh, I see what's happening. Oh, this is gonna suck when the when the shoe drops. Yeah, there's the shoe. Also, there's this there's this um kind of related to that, but like inherent tension of wondering does Yale survive because you don't know because you know that mm. you're in the future with Fiona um and that some people survived and some people don't so but you don't know oh. um and so that I think adds some tension to it. Yeah. So the and yeah, Bailey, totally like that is sort of like a central question of the book. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil anything about it, but I think she really like plays with your expectations and like strings you along on the mystery aspect of it quite mm. well. This is a side elf, which is just like entirely circumstantial and not necessarily rooted in the book, but was really fun, which was that I was in Chicago when I started reading this book. And the book is so like rooted in Chicago as a city, uh, at least during the Yale chapters and even the Fiona chapter. She's from she is from Chicago. She lives in Chicago. She references it. And I was like near to or knew of a lot of the locations that were happening in the book to the point where the Marina Towers, which are those corncob looking things, um, which mm. become a central part of the, the narrative at one point, were literally sh- shared the uh, parking lot with my hotel and were out my window as I read. That's great. I was just like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. That was really fun. So it's just, I mean, obviously, Mackay did not write this book so that I would read it in Chicago at a hotel facing the Marina Towers. But eh, it's well, fun. Andrew, I did the research, so you might be surprised. I'm just kidding. She she does not reveal that she wrote it for you specifically to read. What she doesn't reveal about. it, but I can just assume, right? Yeah, you can read between the lines. And like on top of all of this, all these good things I'm saying, the writing is really good. Like I'm going to check out more Mackay. She's a very good writer. I didn't. It was a book that like weirdly I got too wrapped up in reading to like look for quotes, um, but the, she's very good. I could p- open the copy next to me and probably find one, but that would be bad audio as I leaf through pages. That's quite a good compliment, isn't it? Yeah. No, I was more I was more interested in reading the story than than mm-hmm. analyzing it. And so yeah, the only orc I had was that I thought the beginning dragged, but then I realized I was trying to read it after 14-hour workdays, and the second I wasn't <laughs> trying to read it after 14-hour workdays, it did not drag. So take that with a, a grain of grain. I uh, <laughs> I just want to agree, Andrew. <laughs> a single but grain of rice. I think, I think part of it is your expectations, looking at like the cover. It looks very serious, the densely packed font. And so when you're reading the first chapter, you're like, okay, it's going to take a while. Here we go. And then, mm-hmm. and then when I look back on it, I was like, I guess the beginning was slow, but... But really, I'm just talking about the first, I don't know, 10 pages. And it wasn't even. It was just I was in my head about what might happen. So I definitely agree. That's an interesting observation, Bailey. But I just can't connect with opening a book and being really intimidated by the presentation of the book (laughs) itself. I have no no connection to that. So sorry. Um, So no surprise here. I'm going to give this book five stars. I'll keep it on my shelf. And obviously it belongs to Jillian, so I can't get rid of it. Um, But I wouldn't even if it was my decision to make. Bailey, thoughts? Anything I missed? I agree. Five stars. I'm going to recommend recommended to a lot of people. I think um, if you liked A Little Life, this is like A Little Life, but easier. I don't know, maybe a little more hopeful, a little less dark. Would you agree, Andrew? Yeah. I mean, there's similarities, obviously, in, in some of the themes. I mean, I, I hesitate to just compare them because they center they center gay characters. No, I'm saying more like it's just so engrossing. The spanning of the story. Yeah, yeah, I do think I did find myself thinking about it. Yeah, I found it engrossing and I wanted I was cared about all of the characters and wanted to know their fates. And it, that reminded me of a little life. Yeah, no, I totally I didn't mean to cast any shade. No, I, no, I, no. I totally agree. Um, it makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. no. Guys. But I'm going to get a Yale and Fiona shirt. Yale and Fiona and Julian and Richard. <laughs> <laughs> and Roscoe the cat. Oh, Roscoe the cat. Oh, oh. Absolute king. MVP, guys. 
If you know, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely going to check out more Makai. She has a new book coming out this year that's supposedly really good. So I'm psyched for that. Mm. Nice. It has something to do with podcast. It's about a oh. true crime podcaster that goes back to her college to solve a murder. It's called Bailey's Dream. Yeah, it's called Bailey's Book. Yeah, nice. Anyway, speaking of Rebecca Makai, Toby, do you have any facts on your best friend and my Rebecca Makai? Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Hey. Here are my facts about Rebecca Mackay. Um, so I'm going to read to you from Rebecca Mackay's page, you know, her web page, um, and I'm going to read you her bio verbatim. And the reason I'm going to do that will become clear. Um, and it will be, this is the first thing I learned about her and it made me like her immediately very intensely. So Rebecca Mackay is the Chicago-based author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. The Great Believers was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and received the ALA Carnegie Medal and the LA Times Book Prize, among other honors. Mackay is on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada College and Northwestern University, and she is artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Her work has been translated into 20 languages, and her short fiction has been anthologized in the Pushcart Prize 2017, the Best American Short Stories 2011, 2010, 2009, and 2008, the Best American Whoa, Non-Required Reading 2016 and, 2016 and 2009, News Stories from the Midwest, and Best American Fantasy, and featured on Public Radio International's Selected Shorts and This American Life. Life. The person reading this introduction out loud before Rebecca's event has cut and pasted the bio without reading through it first. <laughs> does it really say that? It does. I really enjoyed that. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't imagine. She's got to have burned at least one person in an event. <laughs> I love it. That's great. That was really fun. Her first novel, The Borrower, was a book list top 10 debut um, and an O magazine selection. So she was kind of right out the gates with her success. Uh, her second novel sounds really cool. It's called The Hundred Year House. It's the story of a haunted house and a haunted family told in reverse. Whatever that means. Ooh. So this is um, a couple questions and answers from an interview she did with the LA Times. The interviewer here is Michael Schaub. Michael asks, how did the idea for a book about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s come to you? Rebecca answers, I actually never had the idea to write a book about the AIDS crisis. I started off writing a completely different book. There's a subplot in The Great Believers with all this stuff about the Paris art world of the 1920s. And that was originally the book. I was originally going to write a story about a woman who had been an artist's model in 1920s Paris. And the end of her life, which I figured couldn't be much past the 1980s. I wanted it to be about the ongoing conversations between her and this art collector or historian who she was trying to convince that in this one painting it was her in the picture. And my husband very sweetly and helpfully pointed out that that was kind of the plot of the movie Titanic. <laughs> this kind of threw me off a little bit. <laughs> That's true. This kind of threw me off a little bit, but in a helpful way. Meanwhile, I started to get really interested in this art guy, and I started thinking that maybe the AIDS epidemic was part of this book. The first thing that I actually sat down and wrote was a letter. It's not in the novel, but a letter from the woman who became Nora to the guy who became Yale, talking about the devastation of Paris after World War I, where everyone she knew and loved had been together in this chosen family, this artistic mecca, and coming back there and everyone was gone or damaged or missing or dead. Eventually, the way it shifted for me, it became really about the AIDS epidemic. Partly my research took me there. Partly I was just following the story where it wanted to go. Nice. That's really interesting. And, and that is something that I didn't say in my review, but they do a really nice juxtaposition between uh, the older woman's story and, and you know, the beginning of the mm -hmm. AIDS crisis in Chicago. Um, so this is from another interview from electricliterature.com. The interviewer is Becca Shu. So, Becca asks, throughout the novel, I was very impressed with your ability to have this intimate portrayal of lives wherein death is very much on the horizon. That's kind of always true, but you really aren't forced to think about it at all until you or your family or your friend group goes into a time of crisis. And Rebecca Mackay answers, Certainly we're all facing our own mortality in one way or another. But one thing that was really interesting to me about the psychology in this book is that it's an entire generation, or within their group, it's their generation confronting mortality together. That really doesn't happen except in times of war. The parallels between the AIDS crisis and World War I were really interesting to me. Not only what happens when an entire generation is decimated, but then how do the survivors move on? 
Um, and then my last little snippet from her here, the interviewer asks a very long and complicated question, but essentially she's asking about her portrayal of the AIDS crisis and not kind of sanctifying everyone who is a victim of that crisis. Um, Rebecca Mackay says, I certainly wanted to resist any romanticization of illness or death. There's a lot of beautiful, important art about AIDS. There's also a certain genre of nodding at AIDS that can bother me. It seems to be more commercial things that are less 100% about AIDS. The movies, for instance, where AIDS is a subplot, people's deaths are very sanitized, a little romanticized, and it's always like someone goes into the hospital and the bed is empty. And we aren't seeing actually what happens or any of the nastiness of this disease. I really wanted to avoid that kind of angle where people's deaths might feel symbolic or somehow stylized or romanticized in any way. At the same time, I'm trying to show beauty and I'm trying to show humor in the midst of all this. I'm trying to show the humanity that people showed and held on to. That line is a little bit of me poking at myself and I think like, hey, watch it. Keep an eye on this one. And maybe winking at the reader a little bit too, like, hey, let's not get carried away with the romanticizing of death of innocence. We should be talking about it, but it's not there for our aesthetic use. It's something to be talked about directly and honestly. And uh, that line right there, like her answer to that question, I was like, I got to read this book. It sounds amazing. She also, I don't know if you read it, Andrew, but in the acknowledgments, she talked about like she thought a lot about what it is to be like a cis heterosexual woman writing about gay issues and from the perspective of a gay man. And she was talking about how she researched it and thought, should I tell this story? And she thought, no, I can make a difference with this and I can expose more people to the story and then they'll want to learn more. I just thought she was very thoughtful and yeah. Nice. Yeah. She comes across incredibly thoughtful in yeah. what she does. And also something I, I wanted to say in my review, which is only semi-related to this that I forgot, is just I feel like the location of Chicago is also really important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really intentional because mm-hmm. we have a lot of stories of this of this time in New York or in San Francisco. And yeah. so she brought also her love of the city and her clear like dedication to the city and telling the city's side of that story to it, which I thought was really nice as well. Yeah. She did mention in uh, another interview that she started writing it in New York. And then she was like, what am I doing? I, you know, she's from Chicago. She spent time there. So she switched it to Chicago. I think it was really smart to do that. And if basically everything Andrew said, if I could like it like you do on Facebook, I would. I agree with you. Wow, what a what a timely reference. I know. I was going to with the Facebook and CD references. Um, that's Rebecca Mackay. I feel like we're going to end up reading some more of her. That's her. Yay. Yeah, no, good re- good research. Well, thank you, Toby. Yeah, definitely intrigued by Reverse Haunted House. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And the podcast one. I know. It's called I Have Some Questions for You. I think it comes out very soon. Hmm. Uh, so read it. Your pal and my Rebecca Mackay. Five stars. Oh, my. The Great Believers. Five stars yeah. all around. Hey, uh, Bailey, where's your cat Wallace's favorite place to sit? Not on my lap. My <laughs> lap bona. <laughs> all right. Well, Andrew, why don't you take a crack at it? Uh, okay. Um, hey, Bailey. Yeah. Did this book make you puke that you read? <laughs> <sighs> yes, I did read a book this week. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, I, yes, uh, I did read a book. Tessa Moshfegs, Labvona. Thanks, guys, for that great Ooh. transition. My Labvona. Oh, my little cannibal. A my cannibal. cannibal. We, we <laughs> my Labvona. <laughs> Is that better, Bailey? Are you happy now? That was pretty good. Yeah. Someone on Goodreads said um, the subtitle of this should be Moshfeg Goes Medieval, and that's pretty accurate. Mm. So what the boys are talking about here is that it. a lot of people have said that this book is disgusting and gross and not worth reading because of that. So that's what they're referencing, just to put it in context. Um, yeah, wait, before you go, Bailey, I want to say, like, when this got chosen for you, I haven't read it yet. I really loved my year of rest and relaxation and thought Eileen was okay. But I was surprised at like the vehement reaction against this book. Like, I don't think I heard one positive review of this book. People either were grossed out by it or just said it just wasn't any good. So I'm very eager to hear what your review is. But that is my kind of thing that I was holding back last time. And I think maybe Andrew had heard the same. I heard similar. That's the word on the street. We did the we did surveys on the street for you, Bailey. Mm hmm. Well, I would say that I don't agree with these people. So that's something. That's a little spoiler right ahead. Okay. So what is this book about, you might ask? I'll tell you. This book, it follows a collection of characters. It switches perspectives. But within this, you know, it's not like by chapter. It's like by sentence it will switch. 
This book follows the people of the village of Lapvona, which is a made up village. And it's during medieval times, not the restaurant, but like actual medieval times. Do they say what <laughs> country it is in? No, I would. I mean, someone online said, like, imagine in Monty Python in the Holy Grail in the beginning when they're like, oh, there's some lovely filth down here. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Sure. My, my mind is Got, there. It's beautiful. It, yeah. yeah, it's a perfect. Great. Um, okay, so we're in this we're in this town, Lapvona. Merrick is there. He's a little bit off, both mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And then we also talk a lot about his father, Jude, um, who claims that Merrick's mother died giving birth to him, but that's not true. Um, that's not a spoiler. That's right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it also follows Ina, who is sort of I I would maybe the village crone like the village witch who <laughs> lives in first of all dream job by the way <laughs> she is kind of also the mother figure to a lot of the people in the town because I mean I guess I should just say it she's nursed a lot of the people she's kind of their wet nurse and she's been around for like a hundred years so like fathers and sons and they've all been nursed by by Ina okay Andrew still dream job <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs> There's a character called Villem. Can you guess what his role might be? Do scream. Bad guy. Oh, he better be the town crier. He's the town villain. He's like, he's the leader um, in charge of the town and he's completely corrupt. Mm. Uh, we also follow Father Barnabas, who is the um, the Christian leader who is working with Villem, but part of the Barnabas knows nothing really about the Bible. He's just kind of going along with it for power, etc. So it's all of these characters. An event happens, which brings Merrick to sort of the palace in the midst of this horrible drought famine that's going on in Lapvona. Um, and so it's a lot about the dichotomy between village life and castle life and the gross things that happen everywhere. It's, it's hard to spoil this book, but also hard to explain what it's about because it's basically just about this town that weird stuff happens in it. Okay. Don't look at me like yeah. that. Was that was that the subtitle under it, Lapona, where it's like, look, it's about this town where weird stuff happens. All right, don't ask questions. Oh, and <laughs> and it has a lamb on the cover because Jude like raises lambs, and Jude his cousin is Willem. So is this book gross? You might ask, and my answer would be. Meh. Really? Things that the book deals with. Um, I guess you could consider them like content warnings, nursing, cannibalism, scatological humor, death, rape, abuse, and grapes. And if you know, you know on that one. Was it gross? I guess so. I came into the book with this thought that it was disgusting and too disgusting for Toby. So I kept thinking, when am I going to get to the disgusting part? And then the book was over. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think, I guess these things are gross, but it felt, the whole thing feels like a folktale, piece of fable, like Arthurian legend type. So it didn't feel real. It's like, I don't really believe that this woman is nursing people for a hundred years. It feels like when you read the grim fairy tale, like the actual stories. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, I guess they did cut off their own feet. It, like, It's like, I don't believe that. With that said, maybe seeing it, like seeing a movie of it would be very gross. I would say hmm. it didn't bother me. So if you're worried about that, I don't know. It didn't bother me. Maybe I'm a weirdo. Am I a weirdo? Would, this, would these things bother you? I don't know. I think you are a weirdo, but I don't think that should, yeah. that should discount anything you're saying. Okay, great. I don't think it, it might bother me because it sounds like what you're saying is like, because you know it's not rooted in reality, it doesn't bother you. But I've read some stuff that I know is not rooted in reality. But if it's like viscerally written, I'm thinking of a certain short story in uh, Chuck Palahniuk's Haunted. And if you know, you know, the thing with the pool. I know that's not real, but it made me like sick to my stomach. So I don't know. Maybe it would gross me out. I mean, okay, so you might remember from my year in Rest and Relaxation, Moshfeg is a great writer, but she's very matter of fact. She's to the point. Short sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm I'm gonna read a little bit from the book. You might say, What does the book sound like? And this is this is the answer to that. Page one hundred. Willem was eating grapes, and again, Willem is like the king. Willem was eating grapes in the great hall, keeping his mouth full so he could stay silent while Erno whined about money. Willem's servant, Claude, was drawing his portrait. It would take a miracle to get the land back for a fall harvest, Erno was saying. I've been taking an inventory, and I still think that if you sold off some of your wheat, Ivan might be more forgiving on the interest you owe him. Please, Erno, it's Sunday. It's evil to discuss money on the Sabbath, don't you know? It's Tuesday, my lord, Erno muttered. <laughs> Every day is Sunday in God's kingdom. <laughs> then, when would, then when would we work? Please, Erno, Claude needs to concentrate. 
So it it's like, it's funny. It's ridiculous. It feels like a Monty Python yeah. sketch. Like, do I think these people really exist? Maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going along. I'm enjoying the book in its weirdness, um, especially mm-hmm. like this this plot with Merrick and what's going to happen. He's sort of learning a little bit about, about his parentage, about actually how he came to be. And so I'm enjoying all that as I'm reading and I'm texting Andrew and I'm saying it's a solid four stars. And then I got to the last third and it just kind of lost me a little bit and I ultimately thought there wasn't a huge plot so Mm. my review would be to what end you know like (laughs) to what end all of this all of these characters this place this grossness like I'm not sure what Moshvag is trying to say you know it talks about religion class uh, gross stuff (laughs) I don't know Um, but you know I found it was a quick read I read it I don't know basically in a day I think three stars three stars three stars so basically i thought it i thought it would be four lost me in the end so it ended up with a three star but like did i hate this do i no i'm more just questioning myself like am i disgusting because i'm not disgusted by this book (laughs) um maybe one of us will have to read it and tell you if you're disgusting i mean can anyone tell you if you're disgusting or do you just have to know yourself Mm. Mm. Well, while we think about if we ourselves are disgusting, Toby, do you have any facts? Yes, I do. Um, so we have covered uh, Otessa Moshfeg before. The one thing I remember about the last time was that she referred to herself as a genius, as I recall. An effing genius. Yes. Um, yes. So we have we have an episode um, where we talk about my year of rest and relaxation. I highly recommend that episode. Check it out. But I'm going to give you basically no bio stuff because we have talked about that before. Go listen to that episode, you lazy bum. Um, uh, but I will give you a little bit of bio. Otessa Charlotte Mosfeg was born May 20th, 1981. She is an American author and novelist. Um, her debut novel, Eileen, in 2015, won the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and was a fiction finalist for the National Book Critics' Choice Award. Um, and I believe that they are making it into a movie right now. Her subsequent novels include My Year of Rest and Relaxation, Death in Her Hands, and Lapvona. I think the movie might be done. I think it might yeah, have been at Sundance. Sundance. Yeah. With Anne Hathaway and Thomas and McKenzie. Yep. So anyway, coming to screen near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of this is from an interview with Vogue with one interesting divergence. And you'll be excited when it comes. <clears throat> Vogue asks, how did you choose the setting of Latvona for the book? Otessa answers, I started the book during lockdown, and so I was thinking about humanity in the more global sense, along with the sense of our being so near to our own history. The pandemic made me think, yeah, we're in an age now, but we've always been in an age. And 1,500 years ago is not that long ago in the big picture. People still had thoughts. They still had longing and hunger and ambition and confusion and loss. Um... How did the village itself sharpen into view? Otessa answers, I'm always looking for the best house to live in while writing a book, and Latvona sort of sketched itself in my mind. It was definitely influenced by being stuck in this house. And uh, Vogue says, your house is so unique. Otessa answers, well, a lot of it is built out of recycled materials, some of which came from a church. The bell is a mission bell, I think from Santa Barbara. It took the guy who built this house uh, 20 years to build it. It was his life's work, and I appreciate that so much. The house is totally imperfect. That's another thing I like about it. There are things that are just wrong about the design and really inconvenient. It's like a person. <laughs> so with the book, it was wanting to be close to the earth and feeling like Lapvona was a place I could get close to the earth with. Toby, did you just describe Otasha Mosfeg's house to us? Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> well, uh, you're going to hear a lot more about the house because it's really interesting. So here's our divergence. <laughs> um, so she lives in Casa de Pajaros. And I will tell you about it. Nestled in a glen in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains, Pasadena, the House of Birds was built by hand between the years 1928 and 1945 by Hermann Koller, an artist and collector who fell in love with the American Southwest during the first quarter of the 20th century. Koller roamed the country, gathering cast-off materials to build his house, and the residence he created is simultaneously a collection, a cultural history, and a biography embedded in a building. Uh, Mr. Flett, can we get back to the assignment? 
minute. <laughs> Toby, did you accidentally look up the wrong person for your bio? Shush. Casa de Pajaros, which is 1,500 square feet and has three bedrooms and 2.5 baths. And here is some of the weird stuff that is embedded in this house. I swear Los to God, Angeles if you use Zillow as a source. Los Angeles' City Hall opened in 1928. For 40 years prior to that, L.A. City Hall was housed in a Romanesque revival building located at 3rd and Broadway. When that building was demolished in 1928, Kohler gathered dozens of large red bricks from the remains for the walls. In 1922, the Pasadena Milling Company was destroyed by fire. The beams in the ceiling are built from materials he found there. Quote, Moshveg says, there are sections of those beams that are stained red and green, almost like a playhouse. Pasadena's Royal Raymond Hotel, built in 1886, was raised during the Depression to make way for residential housing. Kohler found hand-painted pictorial tiles and wrought iron window fixtures there. And that is only a few of the knickknacks and strange things that are making up this house. You can imagine Moshveg stuck in this house in the pandemic. It's bizarre. It's kind of suffused with art. Yeah, she and her husband just lived there and it informed the book. Now we're back to Vogue. Vogue asks, so many of your books show people behaving in absurd, aberrant, or seemingly deluded ways. And this, to me, is why your characters always feel so human. What is that link for you between delusion and humanity? And Moshveg, I think that was a really good question. Uh, Moshveg says, my characters do tend to be interested in self-delusion, and I think that's because so much of our reality is delusional. Even with shared delusions, take gender roles, for example. These things are things that just exist in our minds. There's no God here on Earth actually enforcing them. It's the way we live that enforces them. Uh, so here's the last little tidbit. Vogue says, Latvona's epigraph comes from a Demi Lovato song. Mm-hmm. Quote, I feel stupid when I pray. And in the novel, there are things the characters hope for against reason that keep them tethered to earth. How do you reconcile that tension between needing a faith that sustains and feeling stupid when you pray? And uh, I hope that the interviewer was satisfied with Otessa's um, reply. But she says here, that's a beautiful question. And the one I'm asking by putting that epigraph in there. Do you feel stupid when you pray because you are a stupid prayer or because the world is S word and you don't feel like you're praying to anything? I took the quote out of context, but Lovato's song is about their relationship to their creativity and telling the truth about what they were going through to try and heal. I feel like art is for healing. And I didn't always think that. Bingo, bango. You learned a little bit about Otessa and a lot about her house. Research. Thank you, Toby. I, for one, appreciated that and was not being a butthead during it. Thank you. Thank you for your great facts. Otessa, three stars. Casa de Barros, five stars. <laughs> oh, and yeah. Lapvona, I will keep you because Andrew got me a signed copy, so I can never get rid of it. Um, Ooh, nice. But I probably would keep it anyway. Three stars. Nice. Speaking of life's work, Andrew, do you have a game for us? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I got a game for you. It, it, it's my life's work. It's called Chomp Chomp mm-hmm. USA. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Listen up, y'all. Here's a story. So I didn't know anything about Lavona, and I knew cannibalism maybe featured in it. So I thought about food. Like, the, the people okay. are already dead. Like, it's not like... Oh, so it's fine? It's not Hannibal Lecter. Bailey. It's like the Donner Party. Anyway, continue. Oh, okay. But that's still cannibalism, like 100%. You know that, right? Yeah. No, okay. no, no. But like... Are you going to... If I die first, are you going to eat me? They tried eating mud and there wasn't enough stuff and they ate the spiders and they needed something to eat. Oh. Anywho, the game is called Chomp Chomp USA. I was thinking about food because of that that part. <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. thinking about... as I was in Chicago, which is known for a lot of different regional Chicago-specific cuisine. Mm-hmm. You've got your deep dish pizza. You've got your Chicago dog. You've got a bunch of other things. I don't want to tip my hand. So the way Chomp Chomp USA is going to work is Bailey and Toby will each have three swings to, based on name alone, describe what a regional American food is. So uh, if I were to it. say deep dish pizza would be pretty self-explanatory, but deep dish pizza, you would describe what makes a pizza deep dish. And I will rate you on a scale of one to three in terms of how close you are to the actual answer. Um, so you'll always at least be getting one point because that's the lowest on the scale. And you'll have a bonus point option if you can correctly identify uh, the city or region this thing is from. Oh, okay. Interesting. I will not be changing the order. The order is locked in, but I have not decided which questions are for who. So who wants to go first? Ask me your questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. All right. So, Bailey, you get to go first. Good. What is a garbage plate? 
garbage plate. Okay, a garbage plate is from the South. It's from like Texas. And it's if you go to a barbecue and you had a great barbecue, but then there's stuff that's left over at the end that you normally would throw out, but you're like, wait, this might be delicious. So it's like, you know, tongue. Other people's rib bones. Yeah, like half half a sauerkraut that was left on the table, um, some French fries, <laughs> some curly fries, and also like, you know, some chicken wings. That's what a garbage plate is. Thank you. So you're insinuating that Texas barbecue is sauerkraut, <laughs> um, <laughs> French fries and curly fries, and then oh, maybe some chicken. Yeah. Mm. That is completely wrong. Oh, you good. will receive the minimum amount of points, which is only one. It is on a plate. So I guess you've earned that one point. <laughs> A garbage plate, famously from Rochester, New York, Hmm. is, according to Wikipedia, a choice of two entrees, such as cheeseburger, hamburger, red hots, white hots, Italian sauces, chicken tenders, fried haddock, fried ham, grilled cheese, or eggs, and two sides, either home fries, french fries, baked beans, macaroni salad, topped with mustard, onions, and a meat sauce of slowly simmered ground beef and spices, usually served with Italian bread and butter on the side. So, Andrew, are you going to swing by Rochester now after you visit the bookstores? Rochester is an example of a part of New York that is... Is very far from where I am. At the end mm. of it, we should say if we would eat it, I would eat that. <laughs> so Bailey has one point despite being wrong. Hot Italian beef. <laughs> um, hot Italian beef is a sandwich with um, salami, a lot of hot salami. And is salami Italian? I think so. Uh, a lot, like, like way too much salami, extra, extra pickles. Um, and it's always on a French roll. And uh, there's like a side dip of jus. Wow, this sounds gross. There's no way this is right. And it's from somewhere on the East Coast. I'm going to say Massachusetts. Okay, well, it is from Chicago. It's one of the Chicago distinct oh. things. Oh. However, okay. aside from saying salami, that was incredibly correct. Salami <laughs> is typically made of pork. Sometimes it's made of beef, but it is oh, a yeah. sandwich with lots of roast beef on it, served au jus on Ooh. a French roll. Whoa. So Whoa. because you said salami instead of roast beef, I do have to only give you two points, but like that was incredibly close. Thank you. Would I eat it? Yeah, I'd eat it. I wouldn't eat it because I'm vegetarian. Yeah, so Toby, as a vegetarian, this is going to be a tough one for you. <laughs> hmm mm-hmm. Luckily, there's no points involved in that, so there we go. All right, Bailey, your turn. So Toby's winning two to one. Bailey, Scrapple. Scrapple. I think I know what this is. Scrapple is um, a delicacy from Connecticut, and what it is... Is you know when you're um, you're picking all the apples off the trees, but then there's some apples left over that would be garbage. What you do, they're like the scrap. So you gather them up and then you make uh, what's it called? Like a crumble on it, and then you it's like an apple apple crumble, but it's called scrapple because otherwise the apples would be thrown out. Thank you. Can I try to steal? You can try to steal, but I didn't say that was part of the rule, but I'm curious what you think. So I know this is from the South, I'm pretty sure, and let's say Louisiana. And isn't it something to do with like repurposing peels into a dish, like apple peels? No, apple does not feature in this dish. Oh. Mm, missed opportunity. Well, never mind. <laughs> it is also it's from Pennsylvania. It's like a Pennsylvania Dutch oh, thing. Oh, God. All right. Okay, Connecticut is not that far from Pennsylvania. Uh, Yeah, but it is also, I think, distinctly a different state. Mm. (laughs) Scrapple, traditionally a mush of pork scraps and trimmings combined with cornmeal and wheat flour, often buckwheat flour, and spices. Basically like a black pudding sort of situation, but with pork scraps versus, you know, the other stuff. I would not eat that. I've seen you eat haggis, Bailey, and you liked it. It's the same idea. Okay, it was better than I thought. Okay. These regional uh, dishes are really going to send you to the hospital, man. (laughs) They're pretty rough. (laughs) Well, I don't know about this next one. It sounds fresh and light. Toby, mm-hmm. a Snickers salad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Snickers salad is from somewhere in the Midwest. Let's say Kansas. And it is a salad containing Snickers bars as well as uh, iceberg lettuce and a lot of red onion. You don't think it's a dessert? Nope. I think it's, I've, I've already made it my guess. It does have Snickers so. bar in. Okay. So I, I didn't say earlier, Bailey gets one point because she was completely wrong with Scrapple. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. Toby, you are closer. I, I just, you were so close with Italian hot beef, hot Italian beef, and I only give you two points. So I can only give you one for Snickers salad. It is oh. a dessert. Bailey's right with her instinct there. It's from Iowa. So not quite Kansas. Um, mm. And it is a mix of Snickers bars, Granny Smith apples, whipped cream, and often pudding or whipped topping served in a bowl. 
I'd eat it. Wow. <laughs> I think I'd eat it. I, yeah. So, Toby, you have still have the lead, though. Uh, three points to two, and it's the last round. I'm ready. Here we go. Hangtown Fry. <laughs> um. All right. Uh, Hangtown Fry. Hangtown Fry. Sing this song. Dude. It's from St. Louis, and it's like a bunch of fries, but they're upside down. <laughs> um, they're hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Okay. All right. So Bailey has just thrown away the game because Toby is guaranteed a point. um, And none of that is correct. Uh, But I do want to hear what Toby's final answer is. A Hangtown Fry is from San Francisco, California. Ooh. And it is a type of omelet made famous during the California Gold Rush. uh, And the most common version includes bacon and oysters combined with eggs and fried together. I would not eat that. Ooh. I would try it. It's like sometimes I eat seafood, but that's that's a gnarly combination. Yeah. Do I remember hanging out and get a good Hangtown fry? <laughs> Hangtown. Yeah. Dylan Hang- and I ate it all the time. I was when curious we were... if, if you Northern California raised boys. No, okay. never heard of that. Well, no. take it up with Wikipedia. Finally, Toby, take us on home. You're guaranteed to win, but let's see if you can get as close as you were with hot Italian beef. A hot brown. <laughs> A hot brown. Um, so a hot brown is from New Orleans, and it is a type of like meatloaf, like a, a meatloaf that you make specifically out of beef. And it's special because there's a bunch of molasses in it, <laughs> and that's what makes it a hot brown. I think it's a cup of coffee. Uh, uh, no, Toby oh. was incorrect, but closer than coffee. It's a Louisville, Kentucky delicacy. Louisville. An open-faced sandwich of turkey with sliced tomatoes on thick-cut toast, covered with Mornay sauce and topped with bacon, baked or broiled until the bread is crisp and the sauce begins to brown. Hmm. I don't think I'd eat All that. All right. I don't think I'd eat that either. <laughs> well, Chomp Chomp USA is disappointed <laughs> in you, but congratulations, Toby. Yes. Getting that hot Italian beef is a victory in itself. Good job, Toby. Oh, yes. Yay. Thank you. That's the bear, right? What? They make Yeah, they make it in the bear. Oh, yeah, they do. Bear's a great show, and that was a great game. Hot brown. Ooh. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and Thank you, Andrew. Now Hot brown. It's the time that <laughs> we've all been waiting for. It's time for us to take out the receptacle, the no. jar, the, no. the jar, and pull at random. <laughs> oh, wait. Never mind. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosing. The choosing. The choosing. Hot brown. <laughs> well, Andrew, I mean, a receptacle wouldn't care about your well-being. I mean, it's really cold out there, right? Uh, yeah, actually, it is really cold here. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Is it like raining or is it snowing? Uh, there's snow on the ground, but it's currently clear. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's very similar to like number 60, The Snows of Kilimanjaro and Other Stories by Ernest Hemingway. Ooh, mm. we're bringing it back. Is this our third Hemingway? Yeah, because we is this did our first trip triple movable feast. That was our second oh, yeah. episode. Old Man in the Sea. Yeah. Okay. Wow. wow. We have our first trifecta. Not surprisingly, it's a yeah. heavy hitter like like the Papa. Um, but I know I'm excited. <laughs> I've had this on my book on my shelf for decades, and that's not an exaggeration. It was in like my childhood bedroom. Toby's gonna have fun doing this research again. The problem for Bailey's one is that the title isn't bad, but there's no way for me to say that like. I'm not condoning how this is said, and just because it's on your bookshelf, you're not condoning it? Receptacles don't speak. Okay, well then, Receptacles will give you number 78, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Yes! There are many Mm. good Indians. I I am thrilled that this came up. This is exciting. This is... Have you read it, Toby? No, but I've heard very good things, and it just occurred to me that I probably won't have time to read it <laughs> for the episode. Um, this it's a horror novel by Stephen Graham Jones, who's a Native American author. Um, my understanding is it's scary and good. And he also wrote a book called My Heart Is a Chainsaw that's also on my list. Maybe I'll try to read them both. No, Bailey, Bailey, calm Bailey, down. What do you, what do you I don't know, Mm-mm. but I'm excited. Well, Bailey, I mean, you have to finish Infinite Jest too by next week. I ain't no hollerback girl. Awesome. Okay, so that means, guys, guys, it's happening in two weeks on the podcast. I will be reading The Only Good Indians by Stephen Grant Jones, and Toby's reading some book by David Foster Wallace. Uh Uh-huh. Big Joke or something? Oh, Infinite Jest. Big Joke time. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the to read list podcast. And if you're a resident of a medieval town whose life is so miserable that you end up trying to eat mud, give yourself a break and rate us five stars on uh, on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, it'll bring, uh, you know, a moment of brightness to your otherwise miserable life. 
tell your friends, your family, your found family, anybody. Word of mouth is our best uh, way of finding new listeners about this podcast uh, and get them to try to listen. It really helps us out and we'd appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. 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 Mackay.